Hello and welcome to episode 353 of The Crate and Crowbar, being recorded on the 18th of December 2020. My name is Chris Thurston and joining me, joining me tonight <laughs> via internet phone. I've had literally a sip of white wine and that's where I'm <laughs> heading. Uh, joining me tonight are Tom Francis. Hello. Maj Davis. Hello. Tom Senior. Hello. Alex Wiltshire. Hello. And Graham Smith. Hello. That's right. For the first time ever, we've managed to fit six people on one internet phone. Uh, Pip sends her regards, which makes her sound a little bit like the Lannisters, and that's not an accident. <laughs> <laughs> and this is also our last uh, podcast of 2020, in which, per tradition, we're going to be rounding up our individual picks for our kind of games of the year, or just games that have meant something to us this year. This criteria is getting increasingly loose as we just sort of think about the games we've been playing. So we've got some console games in here. We've got some games that didn't come out in 2020 in here. I don't know what you want from us. It's not a definitive <laughs> opinion setting device, a list. We're just doing our best. Uh, so, uh, and, and speaking of doing our best, we're not doing a video <laughs> this year. Traditionally, we have done a video of this podcast. Obviously, we can't all gather in one place, both for reasons of geography and safety. Um, we could have done it over webcam, but we didn't want to because we're tired. Uh, and so this is what <laughs> you're getting. But we'll be back in the new year with further pods after this one. So the structure for this, the way we have formatted this in order to render a perfectly objective uh, game of the year judgment at the very end, is everybody here has, has submitted their personal five games uh, for the year as I say, not necessarily of the year or of the PC. Uh, and we're going to go down the big list that this made. And then at the end, I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll pick, we'll pick what, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> the first, the first game here to drive a big truck through this intro and make it better in the doing of, of that. <clears throat> Fucking hell. It's Teardown. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, one of the issues I've had over nine months now of doing remote podcasts is I can't look into other people's eyes for help. Real... <laughs> just crying for help. Here. I'm drowning here. <laughs> we can't tell. Well, we've we've only got your voice, your your primary way of communicating to go on. I mm. could tell a bit. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> I just didn't help. Uh, yeah, appreciate that. We're all on our best behaviour because six people's crosstalk town. Will we navigate it? Let's find out. Uh, will we navigate it like the protagonist of Teardown? He knows how to navigate things that are falling apart, doesn't he? Anyway, Teardown, come on. I like Teardown. There we go. Thanks, Alex. No worries. Oh, wow, to the rescue. To the rescue. Uh, yeah, Teardown. What a game. What a game. Um so this is the um, the, the voxel-based um, destruction game in which you kind of do do nefarious stuff, usually um, nicking stuff, uh, getting it to uh, you know, it's sorting out a route so that you can um, you're smashing through walls and and kind of um, and you know making a route so that you can do the thing that you've been asked to do in as short a time as possible before the timer goes down, and then you're done. And um, and it's just this free form, uh, just. Uh, just freedom giving um game which i think is the first uh, destruction based game that i've really felt has um actually delivered on the promise 
Yes. <laughs> it's that rare thing. It's that rare thing. It's, too, it's rare in two ways. One, it's a game which has actually found a use for its technology thing, which the developer obviously had a lot of fun making for a long time. And it's also, it's a game which looks good in GIFs on Twitter, but is actually as fun to play as it looks like it was going to be. I feel like we've had a couple of years now of good GIF games coming out and being somewhat disappointing. And Teardown just absolutely isn't. It absolutely nails its own concept. Um, much more than I thought it was going to. Like I, I, I liked the idea of there's a time limit um, after you grab the first item um, and that you then have to do all the other jobs within. But I don't... I'm not a speedrunner. I don't really care for refining my time in a racing game. What I didn't expect was that this was going to be a kind of more like a puzzle game, an Opus Magnum style puzzle game where we could all be comparing our solutions to these problems and sharing videos of them. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you had told me um, it was a speedrunning game, uh, that would have absolutely turned me off it. And But it turns out to be probably one of my favorite games of the year. Um, Simply because it's not, I mean, that the promise of absolute destruction has been around in games for a long time, but it hasn't ever been tethered to a real purpose. Um, I, I feel like this is the first time that somebody's gone, yes, but why is destruction interesting rather than just gratifying? And they've found the exact game that that, that matches. And it's not just a, a destruction game or a speedrunning game, though. There is there is There are lots of other aspects to it. Um, there are it's quite a varied game there are games where you do just destroy buildings in order to get them to a, a, a certain minimal level and there are there are ones where you need to actually build routes basically in order to um, get around the level efficiently and there's other objectives as well like dodging helicopter gunships and other other stuff of that ilk i i think it's just incredibly inventive and all of its inventions i think are really good uses of the technological debris at its center um which is really a surprise because so often as you say graham a lot of the games that look good in gifts don't tend to live up to the promise of that uh, that thrill but they've they've built out a game which does uh, that alone is impressive well then from tear down to i did plan this showdown as nice. we wade, thanks, Marsh, knee deep into the Marsh of Punch <laughs> Showdown. <laughs> Marsh. Thank you. You'll notice that all my favourite games of the year contain the word down. Uh, that's not an accident. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, showdown wasn't released this year, but I think we get to talk about it because as a live game, these things are always developing. But I think this is the year in which it has developed into... Uh, the most perfect version of itself. Mm. Um, it is uh, a multiplayer FPS um, where teams of disgusting-looking cowboys and girls um, schlep through a cursed 19th, 19th century swamp uh, where they kill big monsters and they collect the bounties from those monsters and then they try and get out before other players murder them and leave their decaying bodies to sink beneath the swamp. Um, we've talked loads about why it's a really good game. Um, it's just got this amazing multi-act PvP VE design where there's these incredibly tense, sneaky, exploratory bits, and then they suddenly turn into like siege warfare. And then there's like a desperate um, flight uh, as you as you try to get out the map or try and pursue people as they try and get out the map. 
Uh, and all along the way, there's these opportunity for ambushes and chance encounters and dramatic reversals. Um, uh, it feels like one of the most varied, structurally, most varied um, level-based, match-based multiplayer games that I think I've played. Um, but that's not really... I mean, that's partly why it's... I mean, why I think it's my game of the year. But the other reason is that um, the direction that it's developed seems to be kind of like antithetical to a lot of the, the, the sort of tenets of competitive multiplayer development as they might have sort of been defined for a long period of time in the wake of, say, Dota 2, uh, where there was this sort of widespread... Um, mistake basically uh where every game sort of wanted to be an esport and uh this led to just this this distortion of how games are developed and who they're for um one of the things of this uh, that that sort of distortion is that they have dizzyingly high skill ceilings and uh they have to have this constantly evolving meta a meta that just evolves basically for evolution's sake so the community gets sort of avidly attached to the the beats of this development um and it can reinvent itself every season and alongside that there are other sort of uh like engagement hooks like loot or items that degrade or highly powerful weapons that you you, you have to put loads of hours into the game to earn and none of these things are like bad i mean I suspect we're going to talk about at least one game uh, later in which these things exist, but are good. <laughs> but I, I don't think they suit every game. And I think the result of this, that sort of mindset means that there are a lot of experiences that you can't make if you just design for that with your laser focus. And the reason that Hunt Showdown is exceptional is that it seems to have gone and just run in exactly the other direction. Because <laughs> it started out as this really kind of aggressively high skill ceiling game um where there was you, you know the, the 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 you weren't really that competitive as a new player there were lots of ways you know in which you would be at a disadvantage um and yet the way it's changed has been to sort of just to throw all that stuff away more or less and help as many new players as it can to get on board and you know that the weapon grind and, and all of that stuff is more or less gone now like Across the course of a year, they've they more or less rebalanced their entire weapon system such that the weapons you get more or less at the outset of the game are some of the most effective in the game. And they've added, and you know, they've added like things like tutorials and practice modes, and added special powers that sort of broaden the tactics at your disposal rather than just simply preferring twitch skill. And they've nerfed like some pro player exploits. There was this thing that you know, really skillful players could do where they would quick weapon switch after firing a shot so that they could hit somebody with a rifle, take off most of their health and immediately switch to one of the more accurate pistols and follow it up and guarantee a kill. If, But that's something I can't do because I'm shit at games. Um, but now <laughs> those motherfuckers have to wait for the recoil animation to finish, giving them a minor, minor, minor disadvantage on their already terrifyingly high skill level. Um, uh, and uh, when that when that change came through, like loads of pro Twitch screamers, screamers, uh, <laughs> that's not. Hmm. Yeah, um, they declared the game was dead uh, <laughs> when that change was made. <laughs> and in fact, it went on to have the biggest simultaneous player counts ever um, for the for that game. Um, and uh, it's it's not that they've reduced the skill ceiling. I think there's there's pl there's there's ample. Space for people to be very good at the game at the highest level. I think they've they've just changed 
a lot of the the way that the strategy sort of meshes with itself. So it's, they've sort of like spread the skill across a large number of different strategic and sort of tactical vectors. So it's not just about Twitch. There's lots of other things you can do to express yourself intelligently and victoriously in the game. And this whole thing is just... It's they've finally made a game for me for for fucking scrubs. <laughs> they've made a game for scrubs, and I love them. I love them deeply. <laughs> I I I wanted to add as well. I don't disagree with any of that. It's also been an important game for me, uh, particularly in the early part of this year. Um, I think that's a a spot on breakdown of why it's good as a game. I think it's also uh, a uniquely um positive social experience as well in its own mad grotesque grim swampy way um and i'm not just saying this because i managed to get a character whose randomly generated name was marsha davis a character <laughs> I, held, I held on to for six months so she wouldn't die until i could show marsh um, <laughs> um but you know you, you made the dota comparison in terms of trends the industry followed that this game is completely in the opposite direction to and i think that's right but like dota i think dota is also a game that moves completely against industry sense in terms of how complicated something should be where its simulation should be located um what you should be asking people to learn what's possible in the simulation and so on and i think because of that it's an extraordinary um it's an like i've said this about dota before it's an extraordinary thing to learn to do with other people and i think it's a kind of a bond forming game and i think a lot of the I'll, you know, I'm not not to skip ahead, but like a lot of the criteria which I've chosen games this year is based on the way I've been playing games this year. And for me, games this year have been opportunities to socialize where they have been scarce and comfort, basically things to kind of plug away at. I don't think, um, I don't think Hunt necessarily indexes particularly high when it comes to comfort because the bee lady will be bees. But um, I do think I do think it's been an amazing way to spend time with people. I think there's no better evidence for that than the fact that of all of the um, I think all of the um, Hunt Showdown duo pairings I know of have all started working on tabletop role playing games together. Yeah. <laughs> As a direct consequence of spending a lot of time walking around a gothy swamp talking about how much they actually do like goth stuff, I think. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's it's a great game for. It's um, like Battle Royale, which is a subject I mentioned, I'll return to at least. Um, it's a game that is part designed game experience and part walk with a friend. Um, and it's just also a walk with a friend with a grotesque horror component, mm. which for me is deeply appealing. Um, and more yeah. appealing than I would say the fantasy of a lot of other similar kind of multiplayer games. Absolutely. Some of my favorite matches have just been spent inside a bush with Jim. Yeah. um from that monster expedition we leap oh Uh, yes that's (laughs) to monster train (laughs) (laughs) go on then all right let's talk about monster train (laughs) wait seriously (laughs) yeah yeah right now okay cool um This uh, is a... I feel really bad now. I feel like I stole the game. <laughs> um, like I say. Like, no, Pip- you guys shut up. I'm going to talk. <laughs> Pips always pay their debts. Like, that's all I'm saying. So, you know, you're gonna do. Okay, Monster Train is a uh, card deck building roguelike, uh, very much in the vein of Slay the Spire, very strongly inspired by Slay the Spire. Um, 
and it was a bit of a surprise in that it kind of um i didn't hear much about it before it was just out and then when it was mm. out it's incredibly polished it's uh i think the art style is is a lot nicer than slay the spires and certainly a lot more cohesive um it actually has a surprisingly rich lore to it and then the design is both um really robust and also really different to slay the spire once you get into it like from the from a screenshot, you see the cards at the bottom of the screen and it's a roguelike and it's a deck builder. Okay, it's definitely in the Slay the Spire genre. And then when you play it, it is all about deploying units. And um, you could say it's sort of spliced with the tower defense genre in, in terms of you are setting up a series of defenses the enemies will have to get past. Um, but rather than being turrets that, that you know shoot in real time, it's a turn-based game where you are deploying units on different floors of your train, that um, are going to deal a certain amount of damage per turn, and each enemy is going to have to deal with each one of them for one turn each. And then if they get past all of them, they hurt your, your I forgot what it's called now, the pyre, that's it, uh, the so, top yeah. of your train, um, which is your long-term health, and that's, that's a problem. And so it's all about where do you put your units in what order, and then how do you buff them so that they're super powerful. And the striking thing when you're playing it especially if you've played stay the spy is it's just so generous it just gives you treats all the time and you sort of can't believe it's giving you what it's giving you like you you'll get an enemy sorry you'll get a unit uh, that you can deploy that's um a lot of them are very specialized they'll have like huge health but no damage or huge damage but no health uh, and there's one that just does three damage three times each time it attacks and so that is a tiny amount of damage it's only nine total but uh, it attacks three times as often as everything else. And uh, that sort of seems semi-balanced, you know, uh, okay, maybe if you buff that attack by like two points or something, then it's going to get three times that benefit. It's going to get six out of that, and that's cool. But actually, you can just plug an upgrade, a permanent upgrade into that unit that buffs its attack by like 15. And then you can just add another one that buffs it by 20. <laughs> and now it's doing uh, 38 damage three times every time it attacks. And it just scales way out of control. And then the very next, like after the next fight you do, the next upgrade station might give you the opportunity to duplicate any card. So you can just take this incredible, like, game ending super unit and just say, oh, I just want two of those, please. <laughs> and that's just compared to Slay the Spire, that is just insane. Like, Slay the Spire, there is one way to duplicate a card in Slay the Spire, but it's very, very rare. Um, and you never get a card. You can only upgrade a card once and only in one way, only the predefined, pre-balanced way. Um, and Monster Train is like, oh, you can just modify these cards to your own design, combine the most powerful things you can think of with, you know, exactly negate the only downside of this card and just make it super fucking good. And then you can duplicate it. And then you get a special event that duplicates it five fucking times. <laughs> and then you can remove like half of your bad cards all in one go. Uh, and then you can... Uh, find something else that just kills any unit in the game in one hit. And it's just so generous like that. And that is, I, I kind of knew when it was happening that um, this exhilarating feeling of just being given all this power so fast is probably has a downside. <laughs> like there's probably a reason Slay the Spire doesn't do this. Um, and it very much, uh, I think I said at the time, it sort of feels like you're, your cool aunt who just gives you all the sweets you want as fast as you want them <laughs> and, uh, and your strict <laughs> parents won't and you kind of know like mm, probably if i have too many of these sweets it's going to stop it's going to lose some of its appeal um and that's sort of true in monster train but not it's not like a big sugar crash where you come down from it and it's awful and you, you regret the whole thing it's much more like you just kind of hit a ceiling a bit sooner than you do with slay the spire slay the spire i'm sort of i don't even know if i've hit my ceiling with slay the spire after all these years because there's so much elegance to it. And it's so carefully balanced and every card has its purpose. Um, but Monster Train, I sort of, um, you do hit a point where it's not that 
I can't get any better at it. And it's not that there isn't more difficult to take on. There absolutely is. It's just that I, I guess I've hit a point where I don't really understand how to get better at it at this point because it's so wild. Because the differences in making the exact right choice versus the second to best choice is a, you know, a tenfold difference in power. You can Doing the exact right thing is going to be wildly out of control because they give you so much power because it is possible to make such wild combinations. And that sometimes those are hard to see. And especially because you're not just dealing damage by playing a card. You are playing a card that creates a unit that then is going to deal damage according to certain logic. And it's going to have some responses to what the enemy does on certain triggers that might trigger at the end of a turn, or they might trigger when it takes damage, or it might trigger when something happens on this floor. And there's all this kind of uh, pre-programmed series of events that you need to model in your head to know how a fight will play out. And it does it does its best to show you the results of that. It will predict what, you know, this thing, this guy's going to take 75 damage in this turn. But to really play well, you need to know that before it comes down to that. Because by the time it's telling you it's going to do 75 damage, the enemy's already on the floor, your unit's already in place, you've already made most of the decisions you can make. Uh, and so if the outcome it's predicting is bad, there isn't always something you can do about it. Um, and I think doing that maths in your head is uh, is really tough. And getting that deeper understanding of the game is probably like the certainly the next barrier I would need to get past to get more out of it. But it's when I think back at this year, all the games that I've had fun with, that's probably the, the most enduring and most enduringly exciting. I was excited about the game for so long, and it just for so long it's given me so much pleasure just to discover these crazy things you can do with it. Just realizing, wait, hang on, you're gonna let me do this? Oh my god, I can just do that? I can double that? I can triple that? <laughs> and that feeling is just so cool. Yeah, it was a it was a wild ride for you know a few weeks, and um, yeah, I felt the same. That sort of that that um, chaos kind of. I'm sure you can learn it, but I. I kind of I enjoyed I enjoyed the the mad rush more than I think that I was looking forward to to kind of drilling into this kind of forest of details. But yeah, um, I actually went back to it today just to remind myself to see what have changed since, and it feels very much the same game. I think there have been some new cards and things added, um, but it's very much the same game. And it was really nice to return to that kind of that 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 generosity of stuff you're getting all the time, and the kind of the numbers letting you really mess around with these sort of expansive sort of chain reactions of stuff things going on that kind of you seem to kind of counter but yeah yeah it's a wonderful game yeah the um uh i think it's the, a game that i just want to play again and again on easy mode rather than trying to push the limit of how hard i can make it like because like slay the spire has a kind of ascension system where you can keep adding extra complications to make the game harder and harder and i probably uh liked the game least when I pushed myself to the limit there. Like once I got to the, my breaking point, it just became kind of confusing as to, I didn't really know why I lost. But when I went back to it recently, I was just like, I want to see all the new stuff. Let's just play on difficulty zero, basically. Just don't add anything extra. Let's just have fun completely destroying everything. And I think it's at its best then. That's when I most enjoy it. And some of the stuff they've added is super cool. Like there's a, I didn't even mention the factions, actually. The factions, uh, there's six of them. And then you can combine any of them with any of the others. So you're always every time you play, you're you're making a kind of dual class build, uh, which is very different to Slay the Spire, where everything's very controlled and and um, self-contained. And the factions are just so cool and so strongly styled. Like each one has something really exciting about it. Like the the plant guys are always regenerating and and getting bonuses for regenerating. And then all the all the stuff they heal deals damage out. Um, the candle race <laughs> that is has units made of wax and units that burn out and all these like really really strongly themed um and kind of smartly designed things that that all feel right together 
Uh, and then the units that eat each other, there's like, like a, a race where they have morsels who are little like critters that just, they, they're units, but then they also get eaten by other units at the end of the turn. And that buffs those units and they kind of confer benefits to whoever eats them. And one of the cool things they added in, in an update since launch is um, uh, the champion, the star player of your, of your primary faction. Uh, they added a new champion for the, the eating guys who rather than being someone you feed and buff him up, he is someone that other people can eat more than once. <laughs> and that trait is called buffet. <laughs> so all the other units can graze on him and get buffed by eating him multiple times. <laughs> Do you know what is the opposite of a monster train? <laughs> no. It is a man going for a walk. Tom Senior. Do you want to talk about Death Stranding? <laughs> I'd love to talk about Death Stranding. Um, we've uh, we've talked about this a lot because it came out on PlayStation last year, but it did actually come out on PC uh, summer this year, July, I believe. So I've I've, I've cheated to get it onto this list. Um, and That's yeah, right. it's just it's yeah, it's just uh, it's even more extraordinary on PC because it's a game about the atmospherics of just walking slowly over beautiful hills, um, while occasionally a demon tries to kill you. And there's a kind of like total kojima nonsense that's full of just bizarre strange imagery that's worth just seeing for the sake of just you know enjoying it even even though it makes no sense um but it's a game i've been thinking about ever since i played it and it's a game that i replayed earlier this year and then watched emma play it and just got new things out of it every single time i played um it's a wonderfully kind of lonely melancholy but beautiful experience and the, the, the kind of moments when we're just walking over terrain it's just surprisingly fascinating even though it's going to be about like trying not to fall over which is just the, the least glamorous uh you know premise you probably give for a game but yeah i love it i think it's great has anyone else played it on pc this year i did and i i feel exactly the same as tom senior i didn't put death stranding on my list of the top five but i easily could have it's a game that made me homesick for scotland um, I spent a lot of time as a kid going hiking with my dad and being in the rain on the side of a mountain somewhere. And Death Stranding has good mountains and good rain. Um, I mean, bad rain, it's toxic. It, uh, it'll age you, <laughs> um, which the the rain in Scotland doesn't do. But it's just, I like people seemed baffled by it when it came out on console and it got kind of, I would say, a middling response. But I think it's, truly exceptional interesting on a mechanical level i think it's got something to say about the modern world and it says that thing through throwing your piss and liking piss mushrooms and all the weird mad kojima bullshit and i even enjoyed the cutscenes in it um as long as they are it is constantly surprising in a way that most games just aren't awesome it sounds like a monster expedition. And if you were going on a monster expedition, <laughs> if you were going on a monster expedition, you Fuck would sake. need, you would need a big jacket. And. <laughs> oh, wow. Audacious. <laughs> and well, you're standing on the shore of that wide ocean wearing your big jacket. <laughs> I've said the name of the game now, Marsh. Okay, I'll, 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 you've handed me the baton that looks rather like a turd, but I, I will take it hey. eagerly. <laughs> um, yeah, this was... Uh, I don't actually know when this game was released. Uh, I played it this year because it was part of that, of that mega bundle uh, in aid of Black Lives Matter. Um, 
and it's a indie game in which you play uh, a, a young girl going on a camping trip, and it, it I, I I don't know that it's terribly interactive, but all of the ways in which its drama and comedy uh, is expressed hinge on player input in in inventive ways, uh, and it's. Uh, above all that, just a, a, a one of the most tremendously heartwarming, life-affirming uh, little bits of media that I have consumed this year. It's just tremendously joyous, and I highly recommend it. That's all. Lovely. Alex, you and I have collected some big jackets this year, haven't we, <laughs> in the game Destiny that we both put on our lists? I mean, what is there to say about the big jackets other than they're there and we're wearing them and mm. we'll be wearing the next jackets as well. God, I hope there's something to say, Alex, because it was on both of our lists. <laughs> it's, a, I, it's a funny one. It's a funny one, this game, because, uh, you know, it, it for me it ebbs and flows. But this, over the past sort of um, eight months, it's probably held me for the longest it ever has. And I think it feels more well after is it six years six years you'd hope that it would be years. quite mature by now but um it, it it really feels like it's on a real good rhythm and it knows how to make me happy and it makes me happy and i can play it in the way that i want to i can play with you and our friends uh to mm. do raids on weekends and i can do you know half half an hour of 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 what feels like progress by doing a few bounties every day as well. Um, or I can do a bit of competitive. It just feels like a good place where I can get all kinds of sort of, um, you know, pleasures, which feel important at the time. They, they kind of, they're a bit like tears in the rain. You know, they're kind of sort of the, the, the achievement that I feel quickly dissipates, but I'm back and, um, and I'm enjoying it and I don't feel too dirty. And that's for enjoyment is all we can hope. Hmm. I do. I believe. I believe that um, that is what Roy Batty was getting at—the yeah. experience of having seen some extraordinary things and then having it vaulted to bring the game's install base down <laughs> to a manageable size. Um, yeah, this has been a big year of Destiny for me as well, and I and I put it on the list kind of cautiously because I think it's like, well, because—and I'll say this—I remember the noise we all made when you, Alex, made Destiny your game of the year last year, I think, <laughs> or, or the year before. We all made a real noise, and that was maybe undeserved because I can understand why it ends up in that position. It's been this has been a big year of Destiny for me. I played it all constantly, like I've done everything there is to do in it. I think um, almost and. It's one of those life MMOs for me. Um, and this has been a year where that's been a real comfort. Like it, it, it's, it's been a lot of different kinds of experience. It's been the game I check into every day. It's been um, a story I really enjoy. I think it's had its one of its lowest ebbs this year um, during the season of The Worthy, which was, I think, um, really the moment when the kind of brutal reality of Bungie as a kind of quasi-indie studio versus an Activision-owned studio became really apparent. And then I think where it is now, post Beyond Light, is the best it's it's been for a very long time. And I think from a narrative and kind of aesthetic point of view, probably the best it's ever been. And um, but it's also been the game that, like as you as you gestured at, you and I played with with friends um, on weekends to go through all of the raids, which are still extraordinary things to do with other people. These kind of ornate six player, uh, highly punishing co op experiences that 
kind of um, like all these games I love, and I think this is becoming the common thread for me, like draw out people's personalities in particular ways that, you know, I think I remember our friend Sam saying um, how he kind of was playing for the feeling of being completely miserable halfway through a raid and just for the kind <laughs> of elation that follows the end. And I think, I know that this is maybe something that sets me apart from a lot of people on the pod, but like, I like that feeling of the moment where you almost fall out with your friends over something a wizard has done in a computer game <laughs> and then your actual friends even though you are adults and then you kind of pull it back together and like we've had a lot of those moments this year uh you know uh, but like but it's so it's that game it's that kind of you know intense sort of intensely cooperative thing but it's also this easy kind of you know feel good alien blaster um and and that balance of the two things, I think, is is has been particularly valuable to me this year. Like I, I, you know, not to skip ahead, but I don't think it would it would reach the top spot for me. Um, but I would say that I think the things they have done to make it more accessible to new players are a mixed bag, but overall good. In that, uh, to the extent that this is in podcast has some utility. If you were thinking about playing Destiny, they have substantially reduced the complexity of the game by removing a lot of content. The downside to that is they've removed. I think all of the single player campaigns that were previously free, um, but you will get to the kind of meat of the game um, faster and with less kind of sort of dead ends to distract you. And I think there's a really good game there. I do think it's moved in a direction where it doesn't really feel like a free game. It is, but it is a, a premium game, which you pay for through the season passes and the expansions with a meaty free trial. But people haven't tried it it's something that i i love very dearly and would and would recommend not least because i think um they consistently do things with their world building in terms of their environment art and their kind of sense of spectacle that is it's banging that's what i'll say about that fucking hell look at them glaciers the end (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah banging banging do you know what else has banging in it it's gears tactics (laughs) (laughs) seamless thank you the banging of guns in the the dire present of the grimdark chainsaw fight it yeah chainsaws the chaining of chainsaws (laughs) Uh, turn-based tactics based on Gears of War, um, which isn't necessarily an obvious uh, mixture, but um, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, I've got a lot of things that I don't really like about it. I think lots of it doesn't really work that well. Like you're meant to be creating this little group of of meaty soldiers, and I mean, I, I don't care about that. And you've got to dress them up in in armor. And all the armor looks the same. I don't care about that. Um, uh, uh, the, the the missions, like you're doing these kind of randomly generated missions, but they're all basically sound feel the same. Don't really, not really interested in that. But what I do love about it is that um, uh, the uh, well, I actually don't even care about most of the classes, like the you know the different classes <laughs> of little soldiers you have. They're all you're kind of boring, it, Alex. But there are a couple that are just so good that uh, they just carry it. And the class that I really love is the Scout. And the Scout is um, uh, carries a shotgun, 
um, and the scout is able to uh, uh, cloak themselves so they can go out into the middle of um, uh, enemy territory and as long as they don't do an action while they're cloaked they'll uh, the enemies won't you know the what are they called the the slugs the the the, the locust the locust uh, they won't be able to attack you <laughs> um but they also have this special ability the the scouts where if you uh, uh, uh when, when you when you engage it, i can't remember what it's called but uh when you engage it um every kill you make one shot kill you make uh grants you another shot so you can run them right into the middle of the load of enemies um they're carrying a shotgun so at close range they do lots and lots of damage um you run them right into the middle of those energies uh, enemies uh um, shoot off the, uh, the the ability, and they will just kill everything around them, and it feels so good. Um, uh, it's a game in which um, your action points. Uh, there are lots of ways that you can uh, earn them back um, by, by making certain actions or or um, triggering certain abilities. And I really like that kind of play. Um, brings to mind um, um, the Mechanicus game, a Warhammer Mechanicus game, uh, where it's all about making and then farming ability points um this you know gears of gears tactics um i i think that it's got lots of rough edges and there are loads of things that are kind of there yeah but just the the ability point farming and the the getting into a situation and being able to set off this this great sequence of 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 events that you can kind of you, you can kind of do that's what i play for and i really enjoy it I mean, I also really enjoy it without as many problems with it as Alex Caveats. Has. They're not so much ca- problems, they're just caveats. They're just like, ah, well, I, I don't really, nah, whatever. I think it's better than XCOM 2. I didn't get on with XCOM 2 very much, in large part because of its, the, the meta layer, the, I can't remember what it's called, the Geoscape. Um, which just seemed like annoying busy work to me and all these counters and different resources and I didn't know what was important and I didn't care and it was stressful and it was overwhelming. Gears Tactics just jettisons all of that stuff and just boils it down to tactical battles and, yeah, caveat, pretty shit menus for kitting your guys out in between. Um, But they've patched it quite recently, actually, and reportedly the menus are better now. But yeah, all the things that Alex says about the the actual tactical battles are true, and I like all the classes. I like the sniper, and yeah, I like oh, actually, the yeah, ability. the good. I like the ability to chain together, as you say, all these different turns, and to throw action points from one character to another, essentially, so that someone who's already used their their two abilities, say, and is now trapped in the middle of of a swarm, because that's the other thing, like. Most of these tactical games put you up against a quite small pool of enemies at any one time that come in waves, but um, Gears of War is obviously famous for having a horde of enemies that all rush at you at the same time, and they manage to recreate that in Gears Tactics so that you are fighting against masses of squishy enemies. Uh, and it's, it's just it's, it's super satisfying to pop them in great numbers i would recommend it to anyone particularly because it's on xbox game pass and it is a very good example of an xbox game pass game i think because i think there i don't think it's been reduced at all i think they're still selling it for like 50 quid it's not it's not worth 50 quid it is worth 
10 quid or 15 quid or whatever the Xbox Game Pass currently is. I think you can sometimes get trial accounts for a pound um, and you can rinse that game of all of its fun probably in four weeks. That's well worth doing. <clears throat> well, the grim world of Marcus Phoenix certainly sounds like a paradise for killers. <laughs> oh god here's yeah. Monsters Expedition yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just an extremely good detective game set in a very very unusual world full of strange characters um, and the more you dig into it it's more of a kind of like horror scenario reveals itself um, but it's, it's piecing together the various bits of evidence that you get out of people uh, is I just found it to be deeply satisfying and uh, I haven't actually finished it because I'm too scared to go to the trial because I have like five different ideas about what happened. <laughs> or the main thing is, uh, I, know, I know pretty much exactly what happened actually, but is who precisely is responsible according to the court is what yeah. I'm trying to decide. To a second guess that, like, because so like lots of characters are complicit in different ways. Um, but yeah, it's just, um, I would just play a game like that over and over again. I think it's, it, it's navigating a city is irritating. And once you've kind of gotten used to the style of it and it's like deliberately confusing to get around um, and like it's quite hard to access fast travel and stuff like that and double jump and a lot of kind of movement stuff that makes it easier. But um, ultimately, it, I just had it to be a very original and well-structured um, adventure game, to be honest. Yeah, there's a very good mystery at its heart, I think. Um, uh, and I say this as somebody who uh, played it for maybe 10 minutes and almost immediately uninstalled it because <laughs> I thought found it so annoying uh like it's uh it has an aesthetic which uh which rubs me up ex exactly the wrong way and it, it it sort of um it goes so hard on that in such uh an ostentatious way that i i, I found it somewhat obnoxious but i went back to it and i was completely wrong uh, and i'm a fool <laughs> for having dismissed it um <laughs> Because there is a, there is a, this great mystery, and all of the criticisms Tom's just raised are, are absolutely right. But it does present you with this some this really complex web of uh, of agendas and people who are absolutely guilty of certain <laughs> things, but maybe not the specific crime you're investigating. And there's a lot of leeway in the game for how you personally choose to uh, put your finger on the scales uh, in quite interesting ways. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, fantastic. I will eagerly play uh, whatever this studio makes next. I really enjoy the way the different characters relate to you as a character as well. Like some of them are just so rude and they just hate you uh, for good reason. And then you, you kind of have, have old, mate, old mates, ancient mates for hundreds of years. Um, but even they have like, there's some wrongdoing on their part as well. And sort of, like, I enjoyed the uh, friction between actually quite liking the character but also realizing that they've probably done something wrong, uh, but yeah, there's there's loads of that in mystery. It's yes, it's a good good mystery. I love it. From a paradise for killers to I like this this preemptive sigh. It's giving me <laughs> <laughs> this is what I feed off. As I unveil myself to have been a segue vampire the entire time. That is the kind of twist you can expect from world of horror that's right i'm segueing to myself as the only person <laughs> who listed this game so and and I, you know i'll be honest like i 
uh, World of Horror for me was a game I played a lot in February. So this is a little bit of a, a stale take at this point. Um, but it was also, I think, the game, uh, well, going back through the games that I played this year, that I uh, I was looking for things that weren't just kind of comfort food that uh, that, that made the, the lonely times less bad. And this is a... Um, I think an example of that, a game that was independently great on its own merits and, and I think um, deserves a look for anyone who's interested in the subject matter. So World of Horror is a kind of, described as a one-bit game, but it's a it's a sort of lo-fi uh, interactive fiction slash kind of investigation roguelite um, IF game um, about kind of initiating a series of kind of Lovecraftian investigations through what feels like a, a very rickety old computer interface. Um, it's heavily inspired, more so than Lovecraft is an influence, but it's big influence are the works of um, Junji Ito, uh, the uh, manga artist um, who is kind of renowned for this sort of combination of cosmic and body horror. Um, and it his you know work is black and white as a lot of manga is and and the translation of that into a like uh one bit computer interface is really smart and a really clever idea to marry that kind of lo-fi suggestive horror with uh, an interface that is itself kind of um lo-fi and suggestive kind of similar to obra din in that sense not not in any other way it's a very different game but it has that sense of uh finding a way to let your imagination do the work without just looking shit, <laughs> which is, I think, a tension that exists in a lot of, of lo-fi games. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way so much as like it feels very intentional and structured and it's aesthetic, but it's also very effective um, in doing less uh, and getting more a bigger result. So you, you sort of initiate a run, which is effectively one life in this deeply doomed world, which is facing innumerable different cosmic threats at any given time and all you can really do is chart one little course through it which is very likely to end in kind of gruesome tragedy but in doing so you expand your understanding of the world you advance some kind of meta progression layers and you increase your ability to go and push other plot threads or, or kind of ace things and there is an overall objective to kind of sort of um in an unlikely way survive enough of these stories to kind of piece together a solution to the overall cosmic threat but that's not really the point of the game. It's not like a. It's neither a, a, a slay the spire where where your kind of job is. To, we're talking about roguelites specifically, where your job is to, um, you know, uh, encounter a new side of the mechanics. Nor is it a uh, a game like uh, Hades, which we'll get to later. I imagine where you know the purpose is to progress a, a single story. It's about dipping into kind of like an anthology of horror stories. Um, and there's some really gross stuff in there. There's some really effective stuff in there. I, I really, really like it. And I, I would definitely recommend anyone who's interested in that kind of horror, check it out. I think it's, it's definitely one of the most unusual horror games I've played in a long time. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I thoroughly recommend it. Don't know how to stop my own flow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also hard to stop killing people when you are in The Last of Us 2. Fuck me, that was rough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it feels strange to me. This came out this year. It feels like it's, oh, it feels like a long time that it came out ago, but it wasn't, I don't know. 
Uh, you played as well, didn't you, Tom Francis? Yeah. I um, I put it on and I'm still in the middle of playing it. Uh, and I can only play it for maybe half an hour at a, at a go because it's quite intense and it's pretty grim. But um, I think that that uh, in those little slices, I'm finding it's the just the sheer artistry that's put into it um, is 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 graspable the the environments that are so detailed and um the play which is very intricate lots of options that you've got to defeat the nasty zombies and defeat the 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 human characters that you're up against as well that you've got lots of weapons and and tools it not that you ever um, um, meant to feel great about fighting and i never do um and when you go through a fight and then you have the section afterwards where you're rooting through drawers and finding crafting resources and and just looking around and then you go into the next area and you know that from that point then you've got another fighting sequence to go through um a couple of those in a session and then I'm kind of done and but 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 within those just the sheer uh, attention that's been put into it um the sheer i mean it's kind of, is it it is an artistry you know it's a game in which huge you know incredible um experience uh and attention has been put into so much of it um and then it rewards you with the sequences like the one where you go to a, a museum and you have a sort of flashback sequence where you go um uh, to the museum and, and explore it um uh and it is really, you know, dramatically, beautifully played. Um, the voice work and performance capture is just beautifully done. Again, the environments are, are, are just a, a, a exciting and interesting to explore. But it's also doing interesting things with my expectations for um, what's going to happen next. I kept thinking that something awful was going to happen and maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. And the way that it played with that um, I didn't want to spoil it, but the, the way that it played with those expectations was clever. Um, those rewarding sequences are, you know, continue to be really, really worth playing. I think that there's a lot to question about the game because of its apparent attitude towards humanity, which is really quite grim and and hopeless uh, as it feels like now. Um Lots to question about um, the way that it was made. You know, it was made within a, a crunch culture. Um, and I, I don't know whether that's necessary for the, for, the, for the sheer depth of creation that's on offer here, um, but played for what it is in, in these little snapshots that I'm doing. Um, I think that it's, um, it's one of my games of the year. Yeah, this um, it wasn't on my list just because the because of the story it tells and especially like the the endeavor you are you are undertaking like what it's asking to try to do i wasn't on board with at all and so that undermined it on that level but it did have some amazing moments and uh i think it has some of the best like stealth guerrilla combat in it that i've played where just yeah. uh it's so well built and it's so it's so rich in terms of um you know how it lets you combine you know, going prone and also aiming a bow whilst twisting over backwards and stuff, all these things that you just can't do mm. unless you have a, a million, million dollars to spend on animation. <laughs> um, 
and it successfully actually made the most of those and made them gameplay relevant and made it actually feel different to other stealth games when you're in a, a cool dynamic stealth situation um i also loved the moment uh that the first time you're being hunted by the scar and they are whistling to each other I, there's something about that scene that's so fucking chilling like you are I've never felt more like prey in a game. Like they, they have this special way of communicating with each other that you sort of, and these are just humans. They're not, these are not like a zombie thing. Um, but that was one of the, the most effective moments of them making humans really chilling enemies. Um, and then the other thing, this is so dumb, but like there is, it has a bunch of puzzles in it uh, and it has really good rope physics. And some of the puzzles are about the rope physics. And there is one in particular that is just, it's off the beaten track and it's just to sort of get a certain, get into a certain room that, you know, has some loot in it um that i think is one of the best puzzles i've ever played outside of an actual puzzle game like because it's <laughs> and that's not just that's not just a genre distinction but like um what i mean is a puzzle that is embodied in a realistic environment nothing about the environment feels contrived for this puzzle um and yet it has that perfect puzzle game logic of you know the elements you know the rules uh you have all the information you need to solve it and i, I was really stumped on it for a little bit and then when i realized this was, sorry when i realized the solution it was uh that perfect feeling you want when you solve a puzzle of like oh yes of course because like everything just makes sense this is what i would physically do probably i would have got solutions faster if i'd really been in the situation in real life like the only thing required for, me, for this breakthrough was for me to believe in the world even more than i already did whereas in a lot of puzzle games the way you solve it is to think more about the abstraction and focus on what are the real rules of this forget what it looks like think about how the actual puzzle logic works and this is one of the rare times where it's like no think more about what is this physically made of? Like, how does this, how would this really work? What would I be able to do realistically in this situation? And mm. um, yeah, it was just, it's so clever. Well then from The Last of Us to the start of the US, that's right. It's cowboy times <laughs> in Desperados 3. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was, that was actually pretty slick. Yeah, right, yeah that that's pretty good. That one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bold, imaginative. <laughs> it's my intro of the year. <laughs> I think this is... Uh, was I the only one to pick this? Marsh, did you have it? I, I didn't have it as my game of the year. I, I did like it. Yeah, this is uh, from the makers of Shadow Tactics, and it's um, which is a game I also really liked. I think I like Desperados 3 more, and they are both uh, real-time uh, stealth tactics games uh, from a a quite zoomed out perspective where you have a team of specialists who are going to be sneaking into bushes and um, planning where to put traps and how to throw a knife at somebody and how to, um, you know, set the situation up so that you can take everyone out cleanly and quietly and hide their bodies before anybody sees. And there's vision cones prowling around um, and all of that. And uh, it's very, very much in the vein of shadow tactics, which I did really like. I didn't finish shadow tactics. Um, I think partly, and actually, I, I didn't remember why until I played Des Desperados 3, because Desperados 3 has a bit of this problem, but it's not as bad, where these games have fucking enormous levels. They are just huge. And in stealth games, that's actually quite unusual. Usually a stealth game, you, you don't want a level to last too long because it's exhausting to, to sort of be on edge the entire time. Um, and these games both have enormous levels and um, there's lots of elements and you're seeing it from a top-down perspective. So you've got to think about so many different things at once and that's very kind of draining um, and it doesn't have, have break points. But I stuck with Desperados more than I did with Shadow Tactics. I think partly because you can actually pause in this one um, and, and like make a plan while um, time is not flowing. 
which is something Shadow Tactics doesn't have and I think goes a long way in a game like this because uh, you don't want it to be about execution. You don't want it to be about how fast you can press the buttons and, and do things accurately. Um, it's, I think the reason it's one of my games of the year is that um, beyond just being a really sort of satisfying... I almost think of it, this might be a confusing word to use, but um, uh, as a stealth procedural, not, not procedurally generated, but just in terms of you figure out the procedure you're going to use to solve problems, and then you just keep using that procedure over and over again. <laughs> and it's that can be considered a game design flaw that, that your same tactics work over and over again. But honestly, I think that's part of what I get out of stealth games is I can just do it. Like I just know what to do and what it, what is what I need to do is really satisfying to execute. It's very, um, the procedure itself is part of the joy. Uh, and it doesn't need to be varied up every level necessarily. Um, and so it has that, but then it also has, uh, I think Desperados 3 in particular has a kind of uh, wildness to some of the abilities and, and the things you can do with it. Um, so for example, uh, one of the classes is a disguise class and she can, you know, there'll be a disguise on each level that she can wear that will let her pass undetected in hostile areas. So she's playing Hitman while another of your, your uh team members is basically playing Dishonored um, and another of the team members is playing Dishonored too because they have Domino and they can link enemies together and then take out one of them to take out them all or, or do something else to one of them that, that, that has effects on all of them. Like all cowboys could. <laughs> yeah, this is this is voodoo, which is uh, raises further questions, I think. <laughs> um, but that character, just as a, just in pure mechanical terms, is, is so cool, um, so well uh, I don't know, just so, so exciting to play as, especially in the context of this, which is relatively grounded otherwise. Um, like I say, each character is kind of playing their own different game. Um, and uh, Isabel, I think her name is, uh, not only can she link enemies with a domino-like spell that, that lets you affect them all by doing something to one of them, uh, she can also mind control people briefly. Um, and her set of abilities just chain together really well. She's also super fast and has certain each character kind of has different uh, ability different like passive capabilities like can they swim can they climb all that kind of stuff um and yeah isabella is, is just the clear star and is so much fun to play with and figuring out how to combine things like disguise and domino and um stuff like that is really rewarding and then i think the highlight for me of the whole game was um a particular moment where i can't remember if this is explicitly if this is like a primary goal or a secondary goal or just something that's convenient to do, but there is some reason why you need or very much want to take out, I think it's like seven or maybe eight people all at the exact same time. <laughs> like if any one of them, there's no, there's, or it's either impossible or very difficult to unpick this network of vision cones that are all seeing each other. Um, and so you can do it, but only if you're going to kill absolutely everybody at exactly the same time. Um, and realizing that that was possible, it seems, I think I had either, I think maybe I had five or four units on this level. Um, and obviously there's a numbers mismatch there, but figuring out how to like, okay, if these, these two guys are domino together. Then when one dies, the other dies. This guy, my cowboy dude, he's got two pistols, so he can shoot two people simultaneously. My sniper can shoot someone from long range, or we could blow up this barrel. And if two of them were next to the barrel, then that would uh, potentially take them both out. One of them could be walking into a trap at the exact same time that the person who laid the trap is killing somebody else with an axe <laughs> and just figuring out this perfect storm of like all seven of these people are going to die at the exact same moment because you execute this perfectly <laughs> orchestrated plan was just um, so like 
supremely satisfying when I finally pulled it off and just watched it all play out exactly to plan. Yeah, it's really good. Maybe it should have been one of my top five games this year, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so what do a cowboy ride? A horse. What does a horse eat? Hey, D's. Uh, is a- <laughs> <laughs> no. I feel attacked. Just no. yes. <laughs> Mentally, psychically assaulted by that. <laughs> oh, I'm having a good time. Uh, Hades. Hades was on several lists. Any one of the people who've done that want to do that? I'll go first. Um, Excellent. Yeah, uh, what I've really enjoyed about Hades, apart from the fact it's a really sharp, snappy, uh, kind of roguelite combat game with a beautiful art style set in the various levels of hell, is the fact that um, I've I've enjoyed actually watching it in early access evolve bit by bit into the really varied and interesting game that it is now, uh, as they introduce new weapons and tweak different kind of modifiers uh, so it's actually been a kind of, uh, actually, the game was fun even when they first released it, but seeing it grow into what it is, I think, is, is it been completely released now? I think it might have reached 1.0. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's just been like a really fascinating process that has been a sort of layer of entertainment over the game itself as well. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I voted for this also. I had a really weird journey with it in that I bounced off it many, many times before I really got into it. And it was actually our, our own community that kind of eventually uh got me uh, to keep going back to it because every time i bounced off of it and thought it wasn't for me they would be raving about it again and i would give it one more go and uh, many of those times i bounced off it again uh and then it finally i think it was god mode that, that ultimately got me into it because god mode is this this special sort of accessibility option where every time you die you get more damage resistance and I guess I must have died 33 times with Godmode on because I ended up at 66% damage resistance, which is insane. Two thirds of the damage in the game is being negated for me uh, before I actually completed it. Uh, you know, one a single run. Um, so I was very bad at it. I was really, really struggling and I wasn't getting much better. You know, the game was making me better with Godmode uh, and that was helping. But uh, beyond that, I wasn't getting much better. And then I, once I hit that point, I turned Godmode off and I just won again straight away. So even with 100% damage, I could then beat it. And it's been I basically just, I'm in a better place with it now than I ever have been. I'm enjoying it more now than I ever have. And I've played it a lot at this point because, you know, that, that journey was quite, um, uh, quite slow. And I think just the fact that it was always getting easier, uh, I was always making some progress uh, was important. And actually the game itself also has mechanics for that. You know, you're, you're constantly accumulating this meta resource that you can pump into like permanent upgrades. And those are, those actually have a huge effect. Each individual, like, time you're buying one of those upgrades for some shadow points uh you can sort of convince yourself it's not a huge difference it's you know it's it's exciting to get it but it's you know ultimately you feel like you're getting better at the game actually i think the game is just giving you (laughs) major major advantages uh especially like multiple lives and healing between rooms and stuff like that that you don't have at the start um it's really interesting i tried recently just starting a new save file and seeing how i found it coming at it fresh because uh, a friend of mine had done that and said that it was way more brutal than he realized and yeah i can you know if i'm playing with with all my upgrades and stuff on, on my normal save file uh i can beat the game reliably on on normal difficulty and then you can sort of you can crank it up with these heat things that, that add extra difficulty problems kind of like slay the spires ascension mode um and i can sort of comfortably get to about five on that um but then starting from scratch i can get to the second boss, which sounds like halfway in a game with four bosses, but actually it's less than a third of the way, I would say, because actually the, the final boss is, is the vast majority of the difficulty. Um, 
and uh, the third one is also significantly harder. So yeah, it's just been a weird, rocky journey in which a lot of the time uh, I was frustrated with the game, but uh, over that slow process... <laughs> Sorry, are you guys segue hearing silence? <laughs> Segway police has come for Chris. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's weird is uh, I can hear it uh, just about, but because the headphones I'm wearing to do this podcast are noise cancelling, I can barely hear any ambient noise here, so you're hearing my ambient noise way stronger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, I think they've gone now. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a weird, rocky journey, and uh, but I'm now in, a, in a, a good place with it. And what's really making it work for me is this this whole meta uh, currencies and uh, especially upgrading the different aspects of the weapons. Um, you are uh, in the sort of long game once you've once you've won a run and you're you're getting into the the end game stuff. It's about earning a certain kind of resource that lets you invest in different aspects for your weapons that are kind of each is an individual play style that encourages you to do something such like, you know, there might be one that's about using your special before using your main attack or, you know, comboing these things in this way or combining these two aspects of your abilities. Um, and because there's, what, six weapons and I think four aspects for each one of those, there's just shitloads to experiment with there. And each time you sort of try one of those and you think you like it, that's all the more motive to keep doing runs and keep doing runs at harder difficulty to keep earning this Titan blood that you can then invest in those and make that aspect that you like even more powerful so that then you can take on more difficulty with the heat system and by doing that, earn more of this currency. And that's just a really satisfying kind of addictive loop. Um, and especially playing this in, in parallel with Splunky 2, which I know we'll talk about later, um, it really shows why it's good to have things to aim for and things to earn and to have a run of a roguelike where you feel like you actually accomplished something and you've got some permanent benefit from it that, that is going to feed into your next run in a meaningful way. Also, Cyrus is a very good boy and I like giving <laughs> him treats so that he becomes my friend. <laughs> or is he three very good boys? I don't know. I don't know how, <laughs> how many dogs is Cyrus? Not that we don't have time to kill here. Uh, is he three or one? Thoughts on the floor? <laughs> I say he's 2.5. Okay. I think he's just one dog. No. He's three boys. I think if you cut off if you cut off one of his heads, he'll probably keep going, keep going which suggests he is three dogs. <laughs> but he's, he's only got one name. You just call him Cerberus, Cerberus, Cerberus. I mean, if, if that <laughs> makes him feel better. Another game that made us wonder, does this count as three of a thing? Is Half Life Alex? <laughs> best one yet. It's the best one yet. Very good. Very nice. Uh, thanks. I think was it just me that put this on the list this year? I put it on uh, the list. I did. Oh yeah, you did I? Oh, then yes, yes. Oh, yes. Then no, no, the I, didn't. I Sorry, just no, I didn't. Oh, oh, what a roller coaster this last. <laughs> <Slimy has been. laughs> I'll keep uh, you guys posted on further changes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Graham, yeah. So, uh, you and I both put this on the list. I haven't finished, actually, because I've got a new PC arriving fairly soon. And decided I was going to park it until until that's there so I can in, enjoy it, the ending with, with less falling down. But I believe you've played it all the way through. Um, How did you did. find it? Uh, well, I was going to say if a revolution in VR happens and no one's around to actually play it, does it make a sound? The answer mm. being no, because it's maybe not the best game of this year, but it's the best game of this year that almost none of my friends have played. Um, 
Half-Life Alex being a prequel to previous Half-Life games in which you play Alex Vance, you return to City 17 from Half-Life 2. That was initially a thing that I was I was not enthusiastic about because having played Half-Life 2 and Episode 1, I was sick of City 17. But playing that world in VR, like everything else about Half-Life, it just refreshes it. Like everything you know about the Half-Life series, Half-Life 1 and 2 is present, I think, in Half-Life Alex, but feels new and is changed by the experience of being in VR. And yet at the same time feels as if it was designed for VR all along. Like head crabs, for example, are a fantastic enemy in virtual reality. Something that jumps at your face when you are wearing a headset and vulnerable to the to the scares, um, unable to move your head around as you're actually moving your head around and dodge that jump or grab it out of midair as it's flying towards you and that sort of stuff is just perfect. The game's filled with things like that. And craning your neck up to look at the citadel um, towering above the city uh, just gives you a whole new appreciation of the scale of it. Same thing with striders as they're stumbling across... um, rooftops and that sort of stuff are newly terrifying in a way that they never were the first time around um and i like i i love so many things about half-life alex it's hard to like pick one but one of the things i love about it is that it brings back elements from half-life one that half-life two sort of jettisoned mainly like zen um Mm. you don't you don't go to zen in half-life alex but the game takes place in a part of city 17 called the quarantine zone now i played this game the first week of lockdown in the uk <laughs> um, and it was interesting to go to the quarantine zone while in quarantine um, but the quarantine zone is an area of the city which is being infested with the flora and fauna of zen and it's a really creepy environment to explore with very interesting enemy design the best of which is jeff um a a big brute of a monster that can is blind but can hear when you move um which is like the most stereotypical horror game enemy i feel like um but it does it beautifully in part because you're in he's like a bull in a china shop basically like that segment of the game takes place in a distillery uh filled with glass bottles which you can knock off shelves and which smash and therefore make a noise and therefore cause jeff to come stumbling towards you he's also got spores on his back which will make alex cough in the game um thus likewise alerting him to your position and the solution to which is to put your actual hand over your mouth in the real world so that Alex doesn't end the game so that you don't cough when he's near. And I think I talked about this in the podcast at at the time, but it's still, it's probably my favorite single moment of a video game this year. And one of my favorite moments of any game ever is being in my house, uh, crouched in a corner of a room with my hand over my (laughs) mouth because the virtual reality scary monster is coming for me that's just it's just like valve have always been great at 
fucking with players i feel like like that's like the amount of player testing they do through the portal games and that sort of stuff they're very good at using that for horror they're very good at using that for jokes and they do it beautifully in virtual reality to put you in positions which are absurd um but completely engross you within the experience of playing that game you talk yeah chris Okay, I agree because I think I think I think I said this at the time, but my thing that impressed me about it was that, like, it's sort of two things at once. I think it's not; it didn't feel like the kind of revolution for VR that I think I thought it might be. But it was every individual aspect of VR that I had seen previously done to the best I had seen it, um, in terms of interface and and technology and engine and game design and all the rest of it. Um, but also, I think in being a VR game, it recaptures something that I think was true of Half-Life 2 as well, which is a sense that you'd never been in a world as interactive as the one that you were presently in. I think that that was the feeling of playing Half-Life 2 whether or not, for the first time, whether or not it was the reality. And it was really nice to kind of reconnect with that feeling of having a um, an, an unexplored depth of freedom when it came to interacting with the world, even if some of that freedom, I think, is illusory. Um, the moment when you realize that you don't have to stick to the confines of your inventory, you can just fill a basket with grenades and walk around with it. Like those sort of things um, feel good. And that's part of the big promise of VR to me. I appreciate it. I talked about it on the pod as part of my kind of broad kind of return to VR this year, which is a subject I will also return to. But um, it's definitely, I think, the best showcase of what that technology can do for a first-person adventure. And also like... And also, I think the reason it works so well is it also exists in kind of meaningful dialogue with the experience of Half-Life in the past. Like, I think it would always have been difficult for Half-Life to uh, repeat its own success in that regard uh, without some sort of vast technological leap. And I think VR was it, really. Um, and so I think we sometimes forget the role of Half-Life as tech demo. And and uh, I think Alex really kind of grabs that and and, and runs with it, which is... Um, really cool as i say i haven't finished it so i think there's sort of uh there's there's more awaiting me but i've really really enjoyed the time that i spent with it i think it's it's redemptive for some things in the previous half-life games which i never enjoyed like half-life games mm. seem obsessed with turning you into like a custodian like half-life one has you pushing slidey boxes around to like circumnavigate electrify puddles a lot and then half-life 2 has you stacking cinder blocks up on a seesaw and uh, the episodes have you like f- fixing wiring and all these moments which i understand why they want to take a break from the pace of combat 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 but they make you do quite tedious <laughs> like puzzles um in order to, to continue um and half-life alex does a similar thing in the Europe, like an electrician going around dilapidated Eastern European flats, scanning the walls for wiring to fix. Um, but it's so much more satisfying to do that in virtual reality. It's so much more satisfying to pick up objects in order to make your little block terror or whatever it is you're trying to do in order to be able to advance. Um, and <laughs> like you, ha- you haven't finished it yet, but I do think the ending... Like, if you're a Half-Life fan, I think the ending is the most exciting ending of any game this year as well. And it would have been, <laughs> it, like, it would have been exciting to see people discover that and talk about it all at the same time. Like, it would have been the biggest deal mm. on Twitter 
and yet it just wasn't because not that many people played the game. I know a lot of you are, are very excited to hear an update on where I am with this. <laughs> I think if I made a mistake that it's not on my list. I think I meant to put it on my list and I forgot. Because <laughs> um, uh, basically I want to just second what you said about Jeff, Graham, especially that, that section is is the best bit of this game, almost to a fault where like the rest of it suffers by comparison for me. <laughs> like after the Jeff section, you're like, oh, actually now shooting people doesn't seem so cool. Because hiding from this is a long section with just one monster and it's all about, you're just focused on that all the time. And it does so much with that uh, in such a cool way. And actually, this is absolutely your point, Graham, but I'm just going to steal it. Um, <laughs> there are <laughs> several moments in that section where uh, it's got that Half-Life puzzle design where you it it's very skillful at making you realize what you need to do. Um, but those moments of realization in the Jeff section are often just absolutely your heart sinks to the bottom of your stomach as you realize, <laughs> oh, you're kidding. I have to do this? Oh, no. Like, you just go into the depths of hell. <laughs> you just escaped to to do what you need to do. What um, what VR headsets do you guys have? I was playing on a Quest. Huh. I have a Rift S, which is the last of the kind of traditional Rifts, as far as I understand it. Which will be defunct in a few years, but I'm with it for this short, brief, beautiful ride. I have the Valve Index, which, disclosure, Valve sent to me in order to review Half-Life Alex with. Nice. Um, cool. Yeah, sorry, I was just browsing because you made me want to buy a headset. <laughs> yeah, well, the Quest is... Um... Uh, people will tell you the Quest uh, can be used for it if you plug it in with a special USB cable. And I bought that expensive uh-huh. USB cable. Uh, but actually, there is another way to do it with a remote desktop where as long as your Wi-Fi is good, uh, you can do it wirelessly. And actually, that worked better for me than the cable did. And huh. playing this wirelessly was so fucking cool. Just being able to walk around my whole room without worrying about a cable was really good. Oh, damn, mm. that's awesome. Hmm. I played it role-playing as someone who's terrified of tripling over the invisible snake that's behind them <laughs> and that's been very effective for me <laughs> there's a really logical um segue from from half-life alex so i'm not going to do that um obviously alex is a character renowned in the half-life franchise for being best friends with an enormous robot dog uh guess who's best friends with a robot horse is tom senior i guess i love my robot for- horses yeah, thank you for understanding where I'm going with this. You hack them and they love you forever and then get destroyed by a much bigger horse. And that is Horizon Zero Dawn in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Woo. It's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's a kind of uh, a post-apocalyptic open world game. Um, but one of the more interesting takes on that, I think, uh, especially when you eventually learn why the world is full of robot dinosaurs and robot horses and robot versions of animals, that kind of thing. Um it features uh, like just a fantastic protagonist called Aloy, um, who, who, with just a brilliant performance on her, and like she's just a great character to play. Um, the robots vary from just being the same size as you, little sort of Velociraptor type things, to just being these towering monstrosities that you can nonetheless chip down and blow bits off them with uh, specialized arrows that you craft. And while the combat and the stealth feels, feels quite clunky initially, once I'd actually gotten used to it, I found it to be like a, just an absolutely it just such an indulgent and absorbing world to explore. Um, and I, I enjoyed the combat so much that um, I bought the expansion and just cleared it in a, we- a weekend because it's just so good. Um, and it's it had some optimization problems on PC when it came out, but it's had a few patches and things. So I gather it's actually running a lot better now. Uh, but 
Horizon Zero Dawn 2 is out next year, and that will probably... I like it so much, I'll probably buy a next-gen console for it. Um, mm. So yeah, that's how much I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably one of the deciding factors for me to go for a PlayStation 5. Because, um, yeah, absolutely agree. And it's the, for me, I think it's probably the best combat in an open-world game. I can't think of another open-world game where I really like look forward to the fights because they're going to be both like exciting and dramatic and action-y, but also strategic and... Yeah. like. I love that feeling of you come across a uh, some huge robotic beast and you stop and you bring up your journal and you read up on what it is and what the component parts of it are made of and what kind of damage is going to make that blow up in some kind of massive secondary explosion and then yeah. figure out, okay, I've got to equip this kind of arrow and I've got to really make sure I like isolate that weak spot, wait till it's turning around so it's in the right state that I can hit its exposed underbelly and then that'll set off this explosion that's going to... Um, you know, deal damage and set fire to other things near it. And yeah, that feels so strategic and so cool. And when you like, you gain expertise. So if I see the robot crocodiles, I know exactly how to just murder them after about 15 hours. Cause I just know exactly what their weapons <laughs> are. And just like learning that. And like, you know, uh, so I've often said about open world games is that often they have like an eight hour long combat system mashed into a 50 hour game. Whereas I think Horizon Zero Dawn's combat system pretty much matches its length. Uh, so you're just always discovering new things and new weaknesses in, in the enemies. That actually keeps that combat system interesting. Uh, and also, you, there's just fantastic sort of bow variants that you can use and traps you can lay and stuff like that, that once you get used to the system and the pace of it, I think it's just splendid. Now, having said that, it's very, very guilty of just absolutely overwhelming you with map, map icons. Uh, it's the most kind of dense map icon game I think I've played for ever <laughs> uh in the spirit of assassin's creed and i think maybe hopefully that's something they'll fix i think it's that's you know it's gonna be interesting as we've said on the pod previously to see the next generation of open world games and how they kind of streamline that stuff i think ghost of shishima actually already did this quite well um but we'll see more, more and more of that as the next generation unfolds i think but yeah it's gorgeous absolutely beautiful as well yeah love that game horizon zero dawn mm. very good it's a it's a a monstrous expedition across a <laughs> futuristic <laughs> landscape, learning as you go to carve apart mechanical monstrosities with your own expertise, a bit like the game Hard Space Shipbreak. <laughs> <laughs> Graham. This was a year for breaking things apart in methodical ways. Teardown was one such example. Hard Space Shipbreaker is another, is it? Hard space shipbreakers. I can never. Oh, well, remember. I copied you the way you wrote it in your email. So, for the benefit of this pod, it's hard space shipbreakers. It could be uh, hard, hard break, break ship spacers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is an early access game in which you are a menial worker in space. It's kind of a cyberpunk game, in fact, because it starts off with you in a rinky-dink little apartment in the future on earth applying for the job and those menus at the beginning of the game are utterly deafening all you can hear is noise coming from a thousand different directions at once your neighbors above below next door sirens outside the window it's basically like tom's flat And you just you just desperately want to get through these menus as fast as you can, uh, and in which you sign away your entire life, your DNA, everything, and begin your new life amongst the stars. But you're not going exploring. All you're doing is taking 
um, dilapidated ships that people don't want anymore, and you're going at them with a laser cutter. The laser cutter is kind of like the, or exactly like the weapon in Dead Space, but instead of cutting mm. off monsters' limbs, you're using it to slice apart rebar and bits of steel in order to dismantle these ships and so you can reclaim the metal and the precious cargo or whatever else inside um, in the most efficient way possible without accidentally blowing the ship and yourself up in the process and it's really methodical and really relaxing basically to just put on a podcast such as the Creighton Crowbar because I listen to that <laughs> when I'm not on it <laughs> and, and just go and tear apart some ships take some panels off and like I love spaceships generally um, but this is by the developers of Homeworld oh Deserts of Karak. Karak yes and I believe some of the developers of the original Homeworld games. And so it has that sort of ship sure. design um, where they're kind of like, is it Chris Foss? That's the concept artist that's famous for these kinds mm. of spaceships. Yeah. Where it's like flat color, um, quite sharp geometric shapes. And you get, obviously, I love those strategy games, but you get a more intimate relationship with something if you break it apart and <laughs> uh, you know if you've ever looked at a, if you've ever looked at a watch <laughs> if you've ever looked at a watch and wondered how it worked or whatever you know you get the 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 cliche of someone who takes apart the watch in order to work out how to put it back together again you don't put these shit spaceships back together again but it is really interesting to take them apart and you get to know um particular kinds of spaceship and then as you play through multiple missions um get to take apart get, get to take them apart faster and more efficient because you look at it and you go oh i know i recognize this cockpit design i recognize this hull i know how to do this and what tool to use and where it's actually connect connected to the parts around it and that all that sort of stuff and it's an early access now so like that's my only hesitation of putting it on my list or recommending it at this point is it's in early access and i would say it's a lot of fun for like 15 hours and then you might run out of things to do at that point. So it feels like a game that maybe will be better come next year's list. And so maybe you want to wait, but I had a lot of fun with it when I played it earlier this year. And if you do buy it, I think you would have a lot of fun with it as well. I've certainly broken a lot of ships this year in Star Wars Squadrons, <laughs> which I will now talk about. Me, Chris. Hi. Um, so I was going <clears> to... <throat> I think I argued at the time that, you know, there was a critical mass of VR games that made me want to finally take the plunge. Uh, but there wasn't. I wanted to wanted VR so that I could play Star Wars Squadrons in VR. And I did. And Squadrons is... Uh, I think we've even mentioned this on the last podcast. Kind of an extraordinary example of almost uncharacteristically uh, EA just sort of making a, a one-off game that sets out to do one thing and, and does it well. And that's to act as a, it feels like it manages to tread the line of being a successor to almost every uh, Star Wars dogfighting game that people fondly remember. It has sufficient simulationist chops to act as I think a meaningful successor and in some ways better than the X-Wing versus TIE Fighter games. Uh, and by better than, that might be spicy to some people, but honestly, I think, it, it has a simpler uh, ship flight model. 
um, but retains all of the complexity that actually mattered um, and marries that with a presentation that is so good and so invested in that universe and so immersive that it vastly exceeds what those games were able to do, both in terms of their engines, which is obviously no fault of theirs because they, they are from the era that they're from, but also in terms of the desire to put as much of the interface into the world as possible, to put as much of it into the ship's own systems. You know, um, uh, people are so desperate to climb into that universe, I think, and this is like one of the most effective portals for doing so. Um, and the other side of it is that it functions as a, a really kind of uh, well-structured uh, arcade dogfighting game more in the you not you know it kind of unlike anything like the rogue squadron games but in a similar spirit of like having very clear objectives very clear kind of game structures to operate within to kind of try and max out your performance and so on um i really 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 like it and i'm pleased that it hasn't died on its ass essentially as a niche multiplayer game um obviously it's helped by the license but i think it's a it's a hard sell at the best of times and obviously it's not exclusively a vr game and it works very well, I think, played with a pad or, or I haven't played with keyboard and mouse, but I played predominantly with a pad or with a joystick setup on a PC. But I think for me in VR, it's like, it's the experience that has been the most significant for me in a game this year, I think. And maybe like, maybe that sounds a bit guarded, but I honestly, like personally, for me, this hasn't been a year of like really huge standout games that clearly dominate the either my time or the competition critically um you know i think we've we've covered on the previous podcast why the kind of the big contender for this year really didn't you know hit that bar and and i, I you know personally i think in, in both my kind of comfort seeking game habits this year and also in just the year it's been there hasn't been one of those games and and this game was was the closest i came to really feeling like oh this is an experience i hadn't had before this year and uh, and that was the experience of properly flying a Star Wars spaceship in virtual reality and and feeling every aspect of that and and living out a very particular fantasy that hadn't been possible. You know, like I said earlier, I've got a new PC on the way. And while, you know, we've 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 danced around the word cyberpunk a little bit on this podcast, but like while cyberpunk is something I would like to play when I have a new PC, I fully intend to replay the entire Squadrons campaign because like the games that it's sort of echoing it has this really robust 10-hour story-led star wars dogfighting story with loads of really cool scenarios in it and really cool moments and reveals and things to fly through um that i want to experience again with a new setup and that's not a feeling that many games have caused me to have this year this and alex i think and i would put them on a par with each other as demonstrations of what vr can actually do um I think particularly, we've talked many times on the podcast about how VR is very good for cockpit games. And I think, but what I think has been missing is a game like this. Uh, Elite Dangerous is is the best example of what currently exists. And I love Elite, but it is also a massive investment. and It's a hobby unto itself. It's this huge project that you've got to undertake in order to get the most out of it. You can get the experience of, oh, I'm small and space is big very quickly. But in terms of like yielding those like really exhilarating moments of like flight and speed and dogfighting and all the things that are kind of um, elicited by that fantasy, it's slow to deliver that stuff. No one else, as far as I know, has really delivered at a high um, presentational level that fantasy in this way. And then the fact that it's married to the kind of the license most people's minds go to when they think of that is great. And I'm really glad to see that it's getting support. Um, so yeah, I, Tom, I know the... Uh, 
senior. I know you played it, but I don't know if anyone else did. Like, um, it seems to have uh, flown under the radar somewhat. But uh, it's definitely one of my games of the year, if not my game of the year. I loved it. I think they nailed the combination of arcade simulation kind of hybrid, uh, where you can just sort of blast your way through and uh, enjoy the, the brilliantly rendered sort of Star Wars universe. And they really, they really get it. Um, but if you want to actually go the extra mile, you can actually get really good at controls and unlock an extra layer of skill, uh, which I have not yet managed to do in multiplayer. <laughs> but yeah, I th- I th- it's a lovely little game. I think it's brilliant. Also, hopefully it'll like, open up the door for more space games if it does well. Yeah. Star Wars, obviously, famous for being a hybrid of Western and Samurai cinema. Do you know what else has Samurai in it? <laughs> it's ghosts of Tsushima. <laughs> Tom. Yep. All right. All right. <laughs> Accepted. Um, yeah. This. Uh, I, the funny. Sorry, my apartment is going to be blaring at you for a while. Uh, I'll try not to say anything too important while sirens are happening. Um, it's when I think back to this year. One of the things that was kind of hard about um, picking a game of the year and just in general. Is, am I even audible over this? Because it's quite... You are <laughs> yeah, totally. perfectly audible over it, but they will never take me alive. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't one of the worst ones. Why are they coming for you now? <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the thing I thought about this year is just, God, I'm really conflicted about all of my... All of the games that, you know, were that I liked a lot, I also have a lot of problems with. And I think Sushima stands out as the one that I'm not. Like, I just... I just really like it. It's just really good. Um, and it's not the most uh, sort of groundbreaking game uh, overall. It's definitely, it's a classic ass open world game, um, but with a nice visually distinct like setting with a, a confident, uh, really exciting art style. Um, you know, it just makes you feel it, like when I say exciting, I mean, it, it's exciting to enter each new area. You just think, oh, wow, look at this place. Oh my gosh, this is lovely. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's aspirational. It's a lovely place to escape to. Um, it absolutely has all of the standard open world tropes. I think what elevates it from that though, there's two things. One is, you know, a lot of these games let you play any way you like, and there's um, uh, stealth and there's combat and there's um, uh, sometimes a third route, which I cannot define at this time <laughs> um, but uh the thing that's unusual about Sushima is is even the combat route i actually like because it's elegant it's not messy i mean obviously i just said earlier that horizon is my favorite open world combat this one it's not a super for me at least it wasn't a super in-depth uh combat system it wasn't sort of super tactical and, and strategic uh but it just when you do it right it feels super good and it's set up to help you do it right like uh, unlike something like Sekiro, which is, I know that playing Sekiro really well is incredibly elegant and spectacular to watch. I can't play it to that level, whereas Tsushima, I can, like, uh, pretty much. I can, most fights I will come out of just th- just thinking, wow, shit, that played out like a really cool movie scene. I, It wasn't unchallenging. It was, it was difficult to do it well, but it's not out of the realm of possibility for just an average player. And when you fight uh, a bunch of dudes at once, it's a case of, perfectly timing your blows and perfect timing your dodges and then just taking everybody out in these really neat decisive blows never never a missed swing never a pointless roll um and that feels really cool and then the other thing i really that really made it one of my favorite games of the year is that its attitude to stealth is actually um i think really like has it has something meaningful to contribute to the stealth genre which is basically just 
here's how you can be generous about stealth and still make it really compelling and really work. It's um, it's so kind to you when you fuck up. <laughs> like you can make a whole bunch of small mistakes, and not only does is it not game over, not only is it not a case of huge reinforcements flooding in, but you can actually pull it back, and you can still feel good about how you took out this camp. Like, okay, that guy did see me, but I took him out before he alerted anyone else. Oh, well, no, he alerted some of his friends, but only two of his friends. And I took them out well, and so it gives you all these little get out clauses, all these little ways of recovering from small mistakes and still having a really elegant, really cinematic. Um, uh, performance uh, on any given challenge. And that's actually super rare in stealth games, especially. Stealth games, both dedicated stealth games and the stealth aspects of, of games that aren't purely stealth games, um, both of them stumble on how to deal with failure. Failure is the biggest problem in stealth, I think, um, because the standard answer is, oh, you fucked up. Now everything is just a massive fucking mess and it's just going to be awkward and painful and unpleasant to unpick. And so either it's a game where you, you quick load at that point or it's a game where you just have to kind of roll with it. And then, honestly, I think in games like Assassin's Creed and a lot of those uh, bigger open world games, that's kind of why people don't really get into stealth as much as I do, because that happens. And then they just kind of learn, oh, you just basically got to fight your way through. It's not really practical to stealth all the way uh, through a camp. And I think Sushima is, is the example I'd point to of like, here's how you do it. It's, is you just have all these recovery mechanics, all these... Uh, limitations on how bad it can get from one mistake. Like that guy's going to sound the alarm, but it's not a camp-wide alarm. He's only going to yell at people in, within earshot. And then if you take those guys out, you're fine. And there's always a way to kind of bring it back. And that's that's really important, I think. I have almost no idea how to manage this next segue. And I did have an idea and I realized I screwed it up by segueing to Sushima from Star Wars because I would like to transition now from famous samurai Obi-Wan Kenobi to Ori and the Will of the Wisps. <laughs> I mean, sure. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 included this, and like, there's hardly anything for me to say about it, really, except that it's a basically just a genre piece. It's basically just a Metroidvania, but with much sharper combat than the original, uh, much more kind of readable combat. And it's just extraordinarily beautiful. Um, so if you forgive like the saccharine nature of the first or 10 minutes of the introduction, uh, an owl loses his feather and crashes and you have to blah, 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 find it, whatever. Uh, and then you play a cute little sprite that has to go and uh, beat, a, beat the crap out of loads of stuff in order to get that back. Um, the actual kind of process of like jumping between spikes is a combination of like Meat Boy, but also with some quite fun 2D combat as well. Uh, and I love Hollow Knight. Uh, I've come around to Hollow Knight but I would sooner play Ori um, just for the sheer visuals of it. And sometimes a game is just too beautiful to ignore. <laughs> it's been one of the most sort of aesthetically pleasing uh, games I've played this year. Lovely. Uh, well, what is a wisp if not a kind of ghost? You can see where this was intended to go uh, originally. No, I see. Uh, but what is a ghost if not the character Simon Riley from Call of Duty Warzone? <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Fuck me. No one asked me to do this, including uh, me. Um, I turned the... about five corners. That was great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Two lefts make a segue, as they say. And um, yeah, so I so I wanted to talk about Warzone a little bit because I, I have to put it on the list because one of the games I played the most this year. Um, and as I've talked about on the pod before, I think it exists in this weird place between being the most garish mercenary cynical 
like output of our industry in some ways like this like in some ways impressively so like everyone knows what they expect from call of duty but i coming back to it after a few years of absence certainly didn't expect the kind of 90s like edgy sticker album vibe presented as far as i can tell all in almost all cases unironically to be so present i don't know what that vibe means to a younger generation um uh i don't think it's deliberately appearing to my retro sensibilities um it is this sort of tacky free-to-play behemoth in in one sense but i think on the other it is also like for my money like the consistently most entertaining of the battle royales um i'm exempting hunt from that fight because hunt is a classy beast all of its own and warzone is not classy but warzone i think captures a lot of what i have always loved about daft you know high kind of high silliness modern military action fantasy basically it has battlefield's sense of scale um and possibility but also that air of like kind of um golden eye-ish trap setting and kind of um assault kind of planning sort of fps shooter thing which means a lot to a lot of people and it means a lot to me as well and it's also been a game that has provided a kind of um an enduring kind of social line this year in terms of a place to hang out in terms of a kind of series of structured but different every time adventures to go on and a lot of that like that sounds kind of highfalutin a lot of it boils down to the fact that it's like a certain combination of like military action fps elements that are just fun to play with and they're helicopters and c4 and rocket launchers and sniper rifles and I don't know why it took this long for a company to throw together those elements in the battle royale context. Cause I also think I, I, I kind of like get a kick out of regular COD multiplayer, but for me, it can feel quite grindy and samey and it's not possible. To, it feels very hard to pull yourself bodily above its kind of skill middle. Um, maybe that's just me getting older, but Warzone feels like it inherits all the things people kind of love about COD in terms of its tactility and, and the fun of using its various gadgets and weapons and things and applies it to a setting where that stuff has space to breathe and has space to kind of create interesting situations where a claymore is not just a thing you pop down in the hope of triggering an extra kill on your kill streak every once in a while, but something you used to meaningfully block off a door. And there's that level of tactical play, but it's also married to this game that's capable of being profoundly silly. Um, and allows you to kind of express your own play style, which might be defined as we're not getting out of this truck, but um, is is really really good. Like it's it's been a big part of my year, and I think I would be dishonest not to include it on on the list of games that have meant something to me this year. Because like God, its characters are so ludicrous, and this week it got its big update. It got a new smaller map, and it's gotten all the Black Ops characters now, and they're indistinguishable from the other characters because it's just army people. Um, of, and it's kind of grim and adolescent and daft but it's also i think just secretly good in a way that it almost doesn't have any right to be but kudos to them because it really is wow it'll take that from me <laughs> what a what a expedition this whole podcast has been so, oh my god monstrous expedition but there is a game we have forgotten, and it is Spelunky 2. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it might be going this way. 
Um, Graham, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Um, so Splunky 2, I'd probably like it less than Splunky 1. It's also made Splunky 1 wholly redundant. I can't play Splunky 1 anymore. It looks like trash. It's a trash game. Um, <laughs> Splunky 2 <laughs> is a roguelike platformer, um, which brings back a lot, a lot more elements from the first game than I was expecting. Um, you're going to go into most of the same zones. You're going to encounter most of the same enemies. You're going to die in a lot of the same ways. What it does, though, is on top of that, it adds some new enemies that um, make you rethink the way you approach some of those levels. It adds new worlds. It adds new secrets. And it's it's a game I have a weird relationship with. Like, this is... I've probably played Spelunky 1 more this year than any other year of the last eight or something like that because during lockdown I got back into it and I started playing the daily again every day and I was really enjoying doing that but I was only doing the daily and I my skills at that game had atrophied a lot and so I was relearning how to play it and I never completed it at all in those uh, in those like three months of doing the daily on a daily basis Whereas with Spelunky 2, I've played it for about 160 hours now, and I've got good at the game. And this has sort of somewhat ruined it for me, um, <laughs> because I've, I feel like I've popped out of the top of it. Like, I completed it six times in a single week, and at that point, just felt like, oh, I'm playing this game compulsively at this point because I've always played Spelunky compulsively, but there's now nothing more for me to do, because there's all this secret stuff that I'm never going to be good enough to get to. Yeah. I'm never going to have the patience for. And I feel like there's this huge gap that didn't exist in Spelunky 1 between, hey, I'm good enough to complete the game, and, hey, maybe I could be good enough to do the secret stuff. And so for the first time in like a, over a decade... I just feel like I'm done with Spelunky. And yet at the same time, I played it for 160 hours and I really enjoyed <laughs> most of that time. And the main like the main thing I want to praise it for is it reminded me of something I'd forgotten about in the original Spelunky. Because like Spelunky is a game that's really satisfying because you look at a scenario and all the enemies in it are going to behave a particular way and you can sort of ma- like simulate it in your head and then try and enact your plan to overcome it. Uh, and sometimes you fail in the execution, but it's it's always satisfying. It's always somewhat predictable. You always know what you screwed up when you died. And, and so that's, that's a really satisfying challenge to wrestle with. But when I first played Splunky, the freeware version, there was also this feeling, a really exciting feeling of discovery to it. Like when I first played that game, going through the first four levels in the first world. I didn't know there was a second world. I had no idea. <laughs> like, it was just a bunch of people on the TechSource forum playing this freeware game that someone had posted. Well, Derek was running TechSource at that point. Um, but, you know, when I, I came into World 2 for the first time, I was like, whoa, it's a whole new tile set. It's a whole entirely new set of enemies. What, what's the fucking... Fr- oh, I'm dead now. Like, you died instantly. 
upon arriving at World 2, and then repeated that when you reached World 3, and repeated that when you reached World 4. And so there was this great fun of exploring that game and learning its systems and being surprised by it. And I, like, I'd forgotten that that was such a core part of why I loved Splunky, because that was 10 years ago, and obviously I'd seen everything the game had to offer in that, in, over the course of those 10 years. So Splunky 2 brought that back, uh, and that was really exciting. It was really exciting to go to its new worlds for the first time, to, to encounter its new enemies for the first time, to learn, oh, how does this work? How does this tweak the system? What can I do with this? How does this object, this new item, interact with this other thing? Um, and that, that I've rinsed it now and therefore feel done with Spelunky, I don't want to let cloud the fact that I had so much fun with it for the for so much of the time I was playing it. And it's it's probably, if I'm being fair, my game of the year. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I wanted you to go first because I wasn't confident I could uh be uh that I wouldn't distract myself into the negatives because <laughs> I had uh this is definitely the the foremost on my mind when I was saying I was conflicted about my games of the year. Um because on the one hand, it seems this is the follow-up to my one of my favorite games ever, and it retains a lot of what makes that special. And as you say, in some ways, you know, it looks so much better and it feels better to play. Um, and it's hard to go back to the original; it's, it improves on so much. And yet, I'm <laughs> full of <laughs> conflicting feelings about it. And I think I'll so I'll start with with positive, and, and that is like I think I had about a month of of really enjoying it. Because my in, my initial response was, I it's so hard and so brutal that I was having just a bad time with it when I first played it, and then I broke through that that first skill barrier of just like you know, when a mole shows up, am I permanently dead? <laughs> That's the first <laughs> skill barrier because <laughs> they were so problematic for me um, uh, initially. And you get to that point where you sort of you have a handle on the basics, and so you can you can often make it through the first world. Although even then, my success rate is way lower than it ever was in Spelunky One. Um, and then there was about a month there where we were all doing the dailies and we we're all talking about it every day. And it was really exciting just to like have that. I mean, that's why it's on my list and that's why it's it's high on my list is it was a uh, community thing. It was being part of a group of people who are all doing the same thing. And especially in these times, as we've said on many games so far, that that connection is really valuable this year. And it was a lovely thing just to be part of this social group, all playing the same experience. You know, that's the, I'm still kind of obsessed with, with just the, the ideal of Splunky dailies uh, as much as the actual reality of them is just this idea that there's something we all do every day and it's the same for all of us and we compare notes on how we fared with it and that's always really rewarding and interesting and when it's a tough day you get to find out if it's a tough day for your friend I, I think multiple days you and I Graham had the thing where like we had fucked up horribly and then we found out the other person also fucked up horribly and we're like yes <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you had a miserable time with this <laughs> so he's a comfort um, misery loves <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then, uh, that, like, there's lots of things I do love about it. The ghost jars are a really good mechanic uh, where it's a perfect risk-reward thing where you you don't have to muck, fuck with them at all, but if you do, and you're very strongly incentivized to, you bring it upon yourself and you know the risks. You know what's going to cause the ghost to come if you drop that urn. Uh, but if you don't, you get 5,000 gold, and that's really important early on. And so uh, I've really enjoyed the times that screwed me. I've had a bunch of really good deaths, Um where you know I knew the rules, I knew the mechanics. I just kind of forgot in the moment of what I was doing, and oh, they combined in a way that was just really funny and had that comedy value. And then I think at the end of that month, I that was when it started to get to the point where 
I, unlike you, I didn't break through a skill barrier. I don't think I didn't get significantly better at it, and I didn't. Uh, I can't reliably complete it. I, I've never certainly. I think I've only completed like two or three times um, ever. And like you, the secret stuff is just out of my realm of possibility. I'm never going to get to do it. Um, and at this point, it's it's sort of exhausting to try. And I, the thing that's limited my enjoyment now is just that it is tuned so harsh, it is tuned so hard that I will die on the first world so often. And the ways, A, that's dispiriting in itself, but also the ways to avoid that, the way to get better at that is to be even more anxious, even more terrified, even more on the edge of your seat from the word go, from level one. You've got to be so fucking worried about everything. Like, there's a rock. There's a rock. Oh my God, there's a rock near a trap. Ah, that could like bounce off and hit me in the head and knock me over. And it's just exhausting to be like that. And I don't mind that in world four. You know, when you get to the temple in Spiky One, you are absolutely on the edge of your seat. There's no question. Um, you, I certainly never got to the point where that wasn't a terrifying experience. But that's World 4, and you get there you know, one in every six times or something. And it's right that you're on the edge of your seat. And I think Splucky 2 is tuned so harsh that I, you've got to be that way right from the start. And it, I don't think I have the constitution for it. And so it's, it's sloped off now. I'm not playing the daily every day. Um, I think I've probably kind of had my time with the game. But it was a whole month, and it was uh, had some amazing experiences in it, and um, it was exciting. I don't think, ex- like the prospect of getting to a new world, I, it never quite felt as exciting to me as Blanky One did. You know that that thing of like I've never been to the jungle before, and it's this whole new world. Um, here, I kind of know what a new world is, and okay, this is a new color, and there's some new enemies, and I don't know what spikes look like in this world yet, so I die six times to them. <laughs> um, uh, but the 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 exciting thing in this one, I think, was the secret stuff is is more exciting than it was before because it has a kind of logic to it now. There's a kind of it's still not entirely logical, and a lot of it you do need to be told to to understand or, or just guess. But there are some things like the crown and the sword. I won't say any more than that, but just I love when there's a little bit of logic to it. When you think, oh, I wonder if this interacts with that, or you know, this thing seems like certain death, but what if I had this item? And that kind of meta puzzling of figuring out you know, why this is set up this way and what you're supposed to do with it. When that's outside of the critical path, when that's not what you have to do to progress, there was a, a, a real magic to that, figuring out, hmm, okay, I know about this item. I don't know what it's for yet, but this thing later in the world, if I ever had that item when I got there, I wonder if there's an interaction there. And that was a really exciting process to discover. Spelunky is a word that begins with an S and has a K in it. So is soccer bond. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> we could use that tenuous link as an excuse to talk about a game that came out this year a monster's expedition through curious exhibitions puzzling exhibitions fuck fuck <laughs> well it's very good <laughs> it's very good and we should probably caveat this discussion by saying yes. that it was uh written by uh not just friend of pod but member of pod uh philip war um that you know is is just a fact let us navigate it thusly marshy was saying <laughs> well as you said it's a soccer bond style game it's a block pushing puzzle game i think it is actually um aside from pip's efforts on the game uh just taking it purely mechanically i think it may be the best block pushing puzzle game that there has been uh which is quite an accolade um Except the block here is a log, and the uh, 
game breaks out the properties of logs as you would expect them to behave in reality, being cylinders and how they move when you push them from the end versus how you push them from the side, and how they might float in water or how they might fall when they fall to lie across each other. And it breaks out all of these different things that you intuitively know uh, and turns them into really well-defined puzzle conceits um, that are both precise and predictable in the way that they need to be for a puzzle game, but also rooted in something that you just fundamentally understand. And the way that it develops each of these new conceits is just, it's, it's so generous in the way that it tries to bring you with it. And like one of my, my things, I, I, I really love puzzle games. Um, and one of the things I always feel about puzzle games is that a puzzle really wants you to solve it. And that's really the difference between a puzzle and a problem. And th this game, I think, is almost one of the best exemplars of that because it really wants you to understand. It wants, it, it wants to kind of puzzle you, obviously, and it wants to tantalize you and tease you and prompt you to deep thinking. But at the end of the day, it doesn't want to leave you just thwarted. It wants to help you and bring you to that greater level of understanding. And I think there are a few things in uh, gaming that are as exciting and transcendental to me as that moment where a puzzle explains itself to you and you are then able to beat it. Um, and on top of that, it is also just this supremely charming, uh, pleasant experience, much of which is thanks to Pip and her uh, her contextualization of these puzzles as being part of this island chain that showcases wildly misunderstood uh, human artifacts. Um, and it's just a truly lovely experience and one of the uh, just a fantastic escape for me during what was uh, a kind of shit year for mm. myself and everybody else on this planet. <laughs> I think with that said, we should move on to trying to identify our games of the year. And so what I'm going to ask of each of you, including myself, two glasses of wine in, is of your the games you dominated or any of the games we've talked about, uh, which one would you pick out as your personal game of the year? And perhaps through doing this, we will identify a collective game of the year. Or we won't, and we'll just have to yell about it at the end of this. But let's start. <laughs> Marsh, would you like to begin? Well, I think... Hunt Showdown is inarguably my game of the year, but uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to build any consensus on that. So I'm going to go with Teardown. Mm. <laughs> a tactical vote. A tactical <laughs> vote for yourself. Our first vote is tactical. That's mm. okay, Graham. None of like none of the games really are leaps and bounds ahead of any other for me. So it's hard to pick just one. But since I have to, I will say Spelunky 2. It is the game I've probably played the most this year and enjoyed at least as much. So I guess just based on errors, I'm making this distinction. So yeah, Spelunky mm. 2. I, I, I love this level of enthusiasm for the arbitrary <laughs> selection process. Very good. I think, all, I think all game awards shows should be presented with this tone. <laughs> In the podcast voice. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Tom, S. Senior. It would be, uh, it would be Death Stranding for me, just simply because mm. it's so rare to see that amount of effort and sort of money and detail and uh, talent put into such uh, into a concept like that that is basically almost combat free 
uh, and it's actually simply a kind of experiential walking simulator. And I think that's wonderful. And it stayed with me. And I think it will for many years. I'll, I'll probably play it again in a few years, you know. And very few games are like that for me. So that's my game of the year. Lovely. Tom Francis. Yeah, this year was tough. This is my, the, the toughest year I can remember to actually mm. have a particular pick. And I think it's Monster Train, uh, surprisingly. I wouldn't have sort of... Uh, that wasn't on my mind as as my front runner until I really sat down to think about it. And I just thought about all the, it's just that mix of, it was wildly exciting. It has really brave mechanical ideas and lets you do wild things that, that just, you know, send your brain uh, into overdrive. Um, and it doesn't come with a big sort of, I used the term sugar crash <laughs> earlier. Like it, it it has limitations, but it's not like you hit a brick wall and then you're like, oh, fuck this game. Like other games in this list that I'm really excited about, I also got really frustrated with and they really kind of stung me for my investment in them. And Monster Train never did. It was just, you know, I it, it hasn't lasted forever, but it was just a wonderful time while I was super excited about it. And it's still something I'll keep going back to as the add to it and will always be a, a enduring pleasure, I think. Alex? Well, it's more more choice agony for me um, as well. <laughs> Should have got you to choose last so we could yell at you. <laughs> Emit a beam. <laughs> if, if you do choose Destiny, I'll delete this file. <laughs> Why are we so mean to Alex? <laughs> well, Alex, if you are if you are stuck for choice right now, I can say mine, and then I basically I just realized no, no, I, I, I can. I'll go on. I can go on. I can go on. I think um, uh, tear down, tear down in the heart, uh, monster hand, uh, monster hand, monster <laughs> monster train in the hands. <laughs> Monster hand in the streets, tear down the sheets. <laughs> I don't know where you go next. It's 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 spectacular and gives you everything you want in the streets, and it's it's <laughs> quick as humanly possible in the sheets. Um. <laughs> I think I think it's going to be tear down because of because of where it took games and it where it took some of the the dreams about games and. Um, yeah, tear down. All right, uh, I can't. I can't believe Marsh's preemptive tactical vote is, is happening. <laughs> it's worked in the way that it has. It's paying so off. Yeah, I always have. I always have a tough call with this as well because I think I, it's not going to be the game that I played the most, or the game that I, um, uh, like. Well, I will say this: I think the game that is sort of singularly kind of surprised and delighted me the most this year is Star Wars Squadrons, and. I think it's the game that I feel most uniquely positioned to say, hey, if you didn't play this, really consider going playing this because I think it's good value for what it is. I think it offers a really fun little experience. And if that fantasy appeals to you, then I don't think it's been done better. However, I, I'm reminded that like in the in previous years of doing this, I do feel like I need to say like if there was one game from this year that I would say like I could give to most people and they could play and find something to enjoy in it, which previously was like the Subnautica reward for offering something to a lot of different people. I feel like I want to answer to that as well. And honestly, and I appreciate how staggeringly biased I am in that regard, I think that game this year is Monsters Expedition <laughs> in terms of a game that I would show somebody and say, like, a game I could give to my mum and say, hey, like, this is kind of mm. a cool example of what games are like at the moment. And I think most people would, would find something to enjoy in it. Uh, I, I don't know if we can count that vote because of my staggering, obvious conflict of interest <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but i do genuinely believe that like i i've struggled I, i've otherwise struggled to identify that game in the list that particular kind of game that that sort of um 
you know, little ambassador for, for kind of um, what games are like now from this year. And I think that's the one. Um, unless you're a big Star Wars nerd, in which case I say maybe Squadrons. Uh, but yeah, but obviously um, what I just said doesn't matter at all because we had two votes for one game. And that makes, I think, Teardown, the Crate and Crowbar Game of the Year for 2020. Yay! All it took was a threat to delete the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you played a blinder there, Marsh, to be honest. <laughs> Very much controlled the voting in two ways. <laughs> As soon as Tom C- as soon as Tom Francis passed on on teardown, I think you you knew what you needed to do to force Alex to, <laughs> to mortally threaten to say that. me. Uh, yeah, I'm exactly. sorry, Alex. You could have voted for Destiny. I wouldn't have really deleted it. You say that now after you. Yeah, he says that now. <laughs> well, um, thank you all for 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 joining us on on this uh, lengthy expedition. Fuck. I'm sorry. I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, we're, good. We're, we're done now for podcasts for 2020. We're back in the new year uh, with more of this sort of thing. If you'd like to send us a question for the new year, you can do so by emailing us at questions at creightandcrowbar.com or you can tweet us at creightandcrowbar. You can find the Create and Crowbar community on Discord, the link for which is on our website at creightandcrowbar.com. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. And thank you, as ever, to our Patreon supporters who sort of month on month, year on year now, are letting us do do the pod. Do the pod nice sometime, perhaps. It's good. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about that, you can do so patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. I think that's it for 2020 in this particular regard. I have been Chris Thurston. I've been Alex Wilshire. Nice, Alex. I appreciate that leaving that open was a fucking lot. But I think we've proven that Alex has the highest initiative of... Let's Let's find out who comes second. I've been Graham Smith. Nice. Thanks. I've been Tom Senior. It's surprising. But I'll get take it. I, I've been Tom Francis. Oh, <laughs> he's got to lose something. It's Marsh Davis, <laughs> the man with the lowest initiative. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's try this six ways. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Eggy, 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 oi, oi, oi. Eggy, 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 oi, oi, oi. Eggy, 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 oi, oi, oi. Fuck your eggs. Mm. <laughs> wow. I love the egg, personally, but I respect your opinion. <laughs>